on episode 541 of the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we meet Alan Aragon and discuss his book, Flexible Dieting, a science-based, reality-tested method for achieving and maintaining your optimal physique, performance, and health. You can find the full show notes for this episode at 40plusfitnesspodcast.com forward slash 541. you decided you're ready to make a change to reclaim your health and fitness the 40 plus fitness podcast is here for you each week we dive deep into health and fitness topics that affect those of us over 40 i'm alan meisner i'm an nsam certified personal trainer with specializations in corrective exercise behavior change and fitness nutrition a fai certified functional aging specialist and an ota level 2 online trainer I'm joined each week by our co-host, Rachel Everett. She is an NASN certified personal trainer and a RRCA level one run coach. Let us be your coaches as you find your way on your health and fitness journey. All right, let's go. This episode of the 40 plus fitness podcast is sponsored by Aura Frames. If the past three years have taught us anything, it's that friends, family, and experiences are the most important things in life. That's what makes an Aura Digital Frame such a cool gift. It allows you and your family to upload unlimited pictures securely from any device at any time. The frame looks great, and the display is a beautiful, true color, automatically adjusting to the light in the room. The photos look like real prints. Aura Frames have meticulously calibrated high-resolution displays. Unless you look really closely or see a photo transition, you'd never know it's a screen. It's a gift that keeps on giving, like when my daughter Rebecca uploaded engagement photos last weekend. It was a wonderful surprise. It's no wonder that Aura Frames are featured in more than 130 gift guides and was selected as one of Oprah's favorite things three years running. Every frame comes packaged in a premium gift box with no price tag. For a meaningful touch, preload the frame with photos and a personal message that appears as soon as it's set up. Setup is a breeze with the Aura app. It took about two minutes. I'm going to treasure mine and the pictures our family shares. With two weddings coming up, it's going to be something special. Learn more at AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A-F-R-A-M-E-S.com and use the code 40PLUS, 40PLUS, to get up to $20 off. Whether it's a thoughtful gift or you just want one for yourself, hurry over to auraframes.com and use the listener discount code 40 plus, auraframes.com. Hey, Raz. Hey, Alan, how are you today? I'm doing all right. Um, Good. Been a a busy week. Um, You know, we had that flood here in the gym and so we've been trying to work on the roof and keep that Mm -hmm. going. So that's, that's been pretty, pretty massive. Uh, and then of course I took the, the holiday break, um, yeah. took a couple of days off and it rained for two solid days, Oh gosh! Um, which was great. No, it actually ended up being great. We were like in a rainforest and a tree, like oh. almost like a tree house thing. And, uh, it wasn't really technically a tree house, but it felt like it based on where it was on the hill. Oh, wow. And then, you know, just sit there. I, I read two fiction book novels. Oh, how nice. <laughs> what a yeah. nice change. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, don't hardly ever read fiction anymore because I'm constantly mm-hmm. reading nonfiction. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think I've got a book I've got to read today, but 
it's uh yeah it's kind of crazy i sat down i had two i brought i brought two books with me because i just wasn't sure how far mm-hmm. i would get into the first book and I, I ended up finishing both of them that's awesome would you recommend either of what you read well one of them one of them yes i suppose uh it was uh i don't know if you get on amazon and prime and the netflix kind of stuff but on amazon prime there's a show called the man from uh high castle oh i've heard of that okay yes. and it was a it was a really good c- series um mm-hmm. and so that this was the book um oh. that, that basically was the basis for that television show awesome. and obviously when you have a television show with all the episodes and all that uh there was a lot more into the plot of the show than there was in the book but sure. it was it was really interesting uh, because, you know, particularly since I knew the characters mm-hmm. from the show to get into their head, you know, because now this was told from, you know, basically the omnipotent perspective where you're in his head, each of these mm. characters had. So it was um, th- that was good. But uh, awesome. it's a good book. It's it's interesting. And then the other one was called Bocas del Toro. Oh, uh, but oddly enough, none of the action in the book actually happened in Bocas del Toro. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so I wonder what the inspiration was for that name. Uh, well, that's where the guy ended up. The the main protagonist, I guess, of the, of oh. the book. He ended up in Bocas del Toro at the end of the huh. book. But um, it was it was kind of odd. He said it was based on some actual facts and things that had happened to people. So you know, you're to assume that this was a person that actually dealt with this. Cool. Very cool. So how are things with you? Good. You know, I actually just finished a book myself. I read this book probably once a year or so. I just finished reading The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. Yeah. It's a classic tale. It's a quick read. And um, I've been thinking about why I was so drawn to it. And it's about endurance. It's about a man holding onto this fish for as long as he could. And after several days of holding the line, uh, up, 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 you're going to give away the plot. <laughs> oh, the classic plot. <laughs> but one of the things in the very beginning of the book that amuses me so much is that the old man is um, in Havana in the, gosh, when was that? Uh, prior to the 1950s, I think. And um, he liked baseball, like a lot of Cubans did and probably still do. But he, his favorite uh, player was DiMaggio. And he was talking with one of his friends about baseball. And he said he needs to watch um, the Tigers of Detroit, as well as the Indians of Cleveland, who have changed their name recently to um, Guardians. But it was just interesting to hear him talk about the Detroit Tigers, which is our team. So it was just really a, a fun little twist at the very beginning of the book. But great book. I would always recommend it. Cool. Uh, well, you ready to have a conversation with sure. Alan Aragon? Sure. Our guest today is a nutrition researcher and educator with over 25 years of success in the field. He is known as one of the most influential figures in the fitness industry's movement toward evidence-based information. Notable clients he has worked with include Stone Cold Steve Austin, Derek Fisher, and Pete Sampras. He writes a monthly research review, AARR, providing cutting-edge theoretical and practical information. He has been published in popular magazines, as well as the peer-reviewed scientific literature. He is the lead author of the ISSN position stand on diets and body composition. He maintains a private practice designing programs for athletes and regular people striving to be their best. With no further ado, here's Alan Aragon. Alan, 
Welcome to 40 Plus Fitness. Hey, Alan. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Now, your book is called Flexible Dieting, the science-based, reality-tested method for achieving and maintaining your optimal physique, performance, and health. And I've, I've read a lot of books. Uh, you're probably my, I want to say, close to 330th interview over the time I've been doing this podcast. And I read every single book. And there's at, there's at least, I would say, 100 citations that I earmarked or just made notes of that I want to go back and read because this was so well-researched, so well-organized and put together in a way that when you, when you get through it and you would kind of admit this yourself, there's points where it feels a little trudgy because there's it's science. And it's hard not to, but mm -hmm. when you get done, you're like, ah, this is what science is supposed to be. You know, <laughs> not some <laughs> of the stuff we've been doing for the last few years, yeah. uh, not what nutrition science has been doing for the last several decades. This is how you do science. And I really, really appreciate the way you put this book together. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, the book's title is kind of misleading. You know, I, I, I was asked to do the book and then I said to myself, you know, this is my opportunity to leverage the, the, the powers of a large publishing house to, to write the ultimate evidence-based nutrition book that covers how to optimize body composition and athletic performance. And just go fully science-based with that and try to make it readable for, for the mass audience. <laughs> and so yeah. calling the book flexible dieting, it sounds like some like it's like a, almost like a pop diet, pop diet book that has some sort of a hook. But then when you go through it, it's like, gosh, if if I <laughs> if I wanted to learn about all the macronutrients, if I wanted to learn about um, you know, different ways to enhance various sports. And if I also wanted to kind of learn what flexible dieting is, that's in there too, among a million other things. And so it's an interesting book, man. I'm, I'm, yeah. I commend you for, for getting through it. It's like an encyclopedia. Well, it, it is. And it isn't. Yeah, it is. It is from the perspective of, you know, when I have a question about when is the best time for me to take my protein, um, I have a chapter on that. I've I've checked a couple chapters. Whether I'm dealing with performance, whether I'm dealing with strength, whether I'm dealing with fat loss, whatever my goals are, I literally now have a reference book to go back and say, okay, at least from a baseline of what science was in 2022. And I, so this is one of those books where I'm sorry, but in about five to ten years, you're going to have to. <laughs> I think you've tied yourself into a second and third edition or something like that. I think there's a Possibly, rule. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but at least what we know today, uh, mm -hmm. this is this is very and yes, we're going to start with because it is important uh, flexible dieting because that's that's the hook, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is a part of the fact that. There is so much information out there and there are what we, a lot of people call the hard and fast rules, you know, the, the rigid, you must do this, you must do that. And we really, a lot of us really, really struggle with that. 
Yep. And, and what, we're, what we're talking about is the continuum of dietary control. Could you kind of go over what that is and why that's really important for us to understand? Because if, you know, particularly weight loss or muscle gain, and they're kind of on other sides of each other, but if we're really looking at changing ourselves and we want to eat the right way, common sense would say, well, find a rigid plan and just do it, you know, (laughs) grind it out, even if you don't like it. uh, And that's going to get you the best results. But for a lot of people, that's not true. Yes. Diets are all effective as long as you stick to them. And the, the $64 million question, well, in Elon's case, the $44 billion question (laughs) would be, (laughs) how do you, how do you stick to a diet? And so the, what I feel is the, the magic answer to that is you have to find an approach that works for you. You have to find um, methods that work for you as an individual. And this is going to be different from everybody. It just varies from person to person. And there are certain immutables. Like, for example, if you wanted to lose weight, you have to impose a net caloric deficit by the end of the week, technically, not necessarily by the end of the day. Um, if you want to gain weight, you have to just do, you have to sustain the opposite hypercaloric conditions or caloric surplus conditions. And as is the, the major public health issue of um, obesity, there is a problem with the general public eating too much by the end of the day, the week, the month. And you can take anybody on the planet and put, give them a script and say, hey, follow this 100%. And they are going to lose weight as long as that script imposes a caloric deficit. Um, now, the minute it that deficit gets swallowed up or just gradually stamped out over time, uh, then the diet will stop working. And so flexible versus rigid dietary control, that, th- that concept attempts to capture... Uh, the difference between on one far end, handing somebody a specific menu with very specific foods and the timing of the foods and the exact grams and um, gosh, even whether the foods are organic or not, you hand them that script and you say, okay, just follow this. And on the very far end of uh, flexible control would be telling somebody, um, eat less of this stuff and maybe more of that stuff and, and you'll be fine. So somewhere along that continuum, um, is the proper, is the proper approach for the individual. And so it's, this is the most non-hookish hook ever, but flexible dieting is really the flexibility of, of the approach that you take. <laughs> to to accomplishing the goals because honestly some people are are do really well with with rigid dietary restraint you tell them okay this is what you need to eat and then they they're just most comfortable doing it and they're comfortable and they actually have fun plugging numbers into an into a godforsaken app (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and and that's you know what that is that particular individual's um psychographic if you will and that's perfectly fine for them whereas if you take somebody who hates that idea uh and you tell them okay you're gonna need 100 grams of protein 200 grams of carbs and 60 grams of fat a day here's your app plug it in here are the allowable foods and then just make sure you accomplish this every day. If they don't like to do that, they'll honestly, they'll last like two weeks doing that. And then they'll just throw their phone out the window and say, screw this. I'm going to, I'm going to try keto or paleo, see how that works. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, yeah, flexible dieting, the approach as sort of an overarching principle is that everybody needs to establish their own personal approach to dieting and the concept of, of rigid dietary control versus flexible dietary control is sort of a sub concept where rigid control involves dichotomous concepts like good and bad foods. And you have to either be precise or it's all or nothing. And flexible dietary control is the idea where, you know, it's, it's not black and white. There's not absolute good and absolute bad foods, particularly when you think of the the their how they fit into a diet. They, you can create a good or a bad diet, um, but the good diets can still contain a margin of in quotes naughty foods, bad foods. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, it, it it can get a little bit intricate when I when I attempt to explain flexible dieting but uh, but yeah that's it one thing flexible dieting is not and this is what everybody kind of gets wrong because of how the diet culture 10 years ago propagated this idea but flexible dieting and um, IIFYM or if it fits your macros th those are not the same thing people just kind of conflate those terms uh, which is false because if it fits your macros, A, it's not the IAFYM is not a diet to begin with. And B, IAFYM is not what people have been led to believe it is, which um, it, it was propagated as a junk food diet or eat whatever you want as long as you hit your macronutrient target. So that's not flexible dieting. Um, counting macros is not necessarily not necessarily flexible dieting, but everybody calls it that because a rumor got started and then it just spread across the internet. And then that was the end of that. And I, and I watched it happen and I, and I knew with the flexible dieting research and the literature, what, what that attempted to get across. And it has nothing to do with counting macronutrients. It has everything to do with not seeing diet, dietary approaches as an all or nothing thing with good or bad foods. Um, and it, it, flexible dieting as a protocol is it really just says look you if you're one of these people who likes to be more rigid with the type of restraint they apply to the diet then good that's you if you're somebody who likes a more qualitative or habit-based approach and you don't want to crunch numbers and you don't want to weigh stuff and measure stuff all day long great. then that's the, the approach that you take. Keeping in mind, regardless of your approach, if you want to lose weight or body fat, the approach you take has to default you to eating less calories or 
you know, somebody will correct me, fewer calories <laughs> by the end of the week, month, year, et cetera, in order to lose weight. Now, one of the things, one of the reasons why that IIFYM kind of concept really took off, I think, is one, it, you're on a message board. So uh, anything on a message board or Twitter, you the fewer characters you use, the better. Um, so it's quick and it answers a question. It's like, well, okay, we're here. But it doesn't answer it exactly. There's another concept you got into in the book that I really do. I, I think this will take a lot of people further down in, into understanding this concept of uh, flexible dieting. Because I think at times we might sit there and say, you know, I really kind of want to have a beer mm -hmm. uh, with my dinner or uh, I'm going out with friends on Saturday and, you know, I know we're going to go to my favorite Italian place. And so you'd start looking at what your food plan is and your, how you're planning on going about your day. It's the concept of discretionary calorie allowance. And I, and I sure. like that because it keeps you aware of the, of the goal line. It just doesn't tell you what every step you have to take is. Yeah. Yeah. That that's true. And the concept of discretionary calories is basically it's it's organized moderation, I guess you you call it. it. It's moderation with a plan. So how do we execute moderation? And perhaps, and, and this is an observation. It's not amazingly there, there hasn't been any controlled research comparisons of of uh, one approach to moderation versus another approach to moderation. But it's been a longstanding observation over the decades that up to about 20% of total calories can come from basically whatever you want. And as long as the other 80% minimum, <laughs> minimum 80% of, of the diet is from wholesome stuff, whole foods, minimally refined foods, um, the in quotes, good stuff, clean stuff, I guess you could call it, then you will be perfectly fine and you will get as good results as somebody who attempts to be a hundred percent perfect with their diet all the time. And it may even be more sustainable to keep a diet going in the long term If you allow this 10 to 20% margin of, um, YOLO foods or foods like desserts, alcoholic beverages, uh, <laughs> deep fried stuff, and things that are, would normally be taboo on, on a stereotypical clean diet. So as long as 80 to 90% of the diet is wholesome, then you're doing great. And then that 10 to 20% discretionary calorie allotment will provide you a respite or a, a margin of, of sanity if you want to let your hair down once in a while and eat some fun stuff or some naughty stuff. And then you can sustain the program a lot better than thinking you have to just kind of grit your teeth through the whole thing for weeks and months until you you reach your goal. And it just doesn't work like that. And And I want to throw in a little wrinkle here for folks kind of uh, confused about the idea that we need to add um, 
naughty foods into the diet. If you're the type of person who doesn't like those kinds of foods, if you're the type of person who just hates the idea of eating cakes, candy, cookies, ice cream, alcoholic beverages, fried foods, etc., then you don't have to. Eat 100% Spartan if, if, if that's what makes you happy and that's what you want to ride into the sunset with. But we have to be aware that the vast majority of us are going to be able to sustain the diet for a lifetime more successfully if we allot discretionary calories. Yeah. And the cool of that is you are paying attention to your nutrition. So you're getting the nutrition your body needs mm -hmm. and you're keeping your calories in line with what you need to hit your goal, whether that's to lose weight, gain weight, all of that's in line because you know what you're supposed to be doing and you're staying within kind of this flexible, okay, pivot here. I can, I, I need to be a little bit more rigid for, you know, I'm gonna, I can be more rigid because there's not, my wife's not here for the next two weeks. So I can be really, really rigid if I want to, whereas she's going to come back and want to socialize and go out to dinner and do things. So there, I know for the next two weeks, I'm probably going to have a lot more of those discretionary <laughs> calories uh, hitting my, my palate. And as long as that doesn't trigger me and cause me to kind of say, okay, you know, one beer becomes two and then two becomes four. As long as mm -hmm. I'm not triggered by what's going on, then that's a, that can be a really good way to sustain this. Now yes. I'm looking at my notes and this is, this is sad because, um, this says more about me. Uh, it says a lot about your book, but it just looks like a hodgepodge of things. I was having so much fun <laughs> reading this, <laughs> but I'm like, I want to talk about everything. But the core of it is there were, there were a couple concepts that were in the book that I've never talked about here. We've talked about like the importance of eating protein and getting enough protein, but I've never talked about the reason why we need enough protein. And that relates to uh, protein turnover, muscle protein turnover, and the fact that being over 40, our ability to maintain and retain our muscle and maybe even gain muscle is that formula is changing for us as we mm -hmm. age. And so the mm -hmm. importance to me, the importance of protein goes up substantially over the age of 40. I think that's what I was, <laughs> that was one of the thoughts that was in my head. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the book, you talked about the protein intake hierarchy of importance. Mm -hmm. And you talk about those and, you know, again, one, why is protein? What is this, this turnover thing that's happening? Why do we need protein? And then how do we get our protein? What's, what's the hierarchy of intake? Okay. <laughs> a lot of okay. ideas, a lot of ideas I know, but it was like, as I was reading, I was like, this is so good. I can't not, I, and I kept doing it, but uh, so pardon the question, not being a question, but. I'm asking for an essay. <laughs> uh, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. It's funny because when I answer these questions, it hits a point in my answer where I'm somewhat self-aware that, oh gosh, I've been rambling for about five minutes now for one question. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm totally cool with that. I'm totally cool <laughs> with that. You guys need to take a potty break and come back in the middle. That's also good. It's here. It's a podcast. Awesome. You can hit pause. <laughs> oh, great. Good, good. Yeah. Yes. Dear audience, you may take breaks. Yeah. The, the concept of muscle protein turnover, you have two sides of this cycle. One side is muscle protein synthesis or the buildup side, and then muscle protein breakdown, which is sort of the, the catabolic side. So 
um, this cycle is a perpetual thing that goes on in the body on a 24 hour basis. And so when muscle protein synthesis is equal to muscle protein breakdown, then you're basically just maintaining your muscle, which is a good thing. Um, and then you've got um, muscle protein synthesis exceeding muscle protein breakdown, and then you've got muscle growth. And then you have the loss of muscle when the breakdown side of the cycle exceeds the synthesis side. So that's kind of the idea of, of muscle protein, what we call turnover. And so for the older population, there is uh, a phenomenon called sarcopenia. And there's even a, a related phenomenon called sarcopenic obesity, which is sort of a, a combination of, uh, of pathologies. So sarcopenia is an age-related loss of lean body mass. And uh, sarcopenia is underneath the umbrella of a larger phenomenon called frailty, which happens with advanced age with a just a general loss of function that's related to um, undue weight loss, uh, specifically the loss of, of lean tissue, lean tissue mass throughout the body. And under frailty, we've got the loss of muscle tissue, which is sarcopenia. And this is a major problem in the aging population. And a lot of people don't realize that getting, getting enough protein is crucial to successful aging. And that's because as people age, there's not only a tendency to not move around as much, but there's also a tendency to not push and pull and squat as much. <laughs> so um, non-exercise activity goes down. Exercise activity goes down as well. And this can be a gradual sort of insidious thing that sneaks up on people um, where they're just sitting a lot more, lying around a lot more and just not moving as much and, and certainly not making formal visits to the gym or the track or the field or the, the pickup basketball game. And what happens is a phenomenon called disuse of, of the muscle tissue. And there, there's an interesting thing that can happen where you can take young people and put them on bed rest and their muscle structure and function will just start to resemble somebody who has aged muscle or almost sarcopenic muscle because um, you can create um, muscle that resembles muscle that that is of somebody of an advanced age if it's if you just impose disuse on the muscle and so this can happen at the at the or macro level where you're just looking at muscle mass and it can also happen at the micro level where you impair the so-called muscle protein synthetic response the mps response to feeding so in in bedridden muscle muscle protein synthesis in response to protein feeding is actually lower after a, a short, relatively short period of, of uh, disuse. And in older people, this just happens more gradually and it happens over time because of a gradual progression of disuse. And 
there are other factors too involved with um, aging muscle and the deterioration of its structure and function. So protein's role is to make sure that you minimize these age-related muscle losses, but just as importantly, protein intake synergizes with resistance training to create an environment that prevents a physiological environment that is not your, you know, the interior decoration of your, of your home office, but it creates this physiological environment, the combination of protein intake or enough protein intake and resistance training, that combination will prevent muscle loss and can even um, oftentimes cause muscle gain in folks who, um, who really need it. And so this is something, the good news about preventing sarcopenia uh, is that it is possible and it is even possible to reverse the earmarks of sarcopenia and anybody at any age can just start performing resistance training as long as you do it safely and, and gradually enough. And then you can get muscle structure and function back and protein plus resistance training is the recipe for that. And there are other factors too. You can't just do it on no calories. You know, you have to be eating enough, enough calories because the, uh, the recipe for muscle growth really is, is enough protein, enough calories, and then make sure your resistance training. So that is the role of protein and the importance of it. When we're talking about muscle protein turnover and how it relates to aging and with the older population, their dietary habits are really kind of crappy in terms of achieving enough total daily protein. So it usually begins at the first meal of the day where a significant amount of protein or any real amount of protein at all is, is basically neglected. And then lunch has a moderate ish amount of protein and then dinner will contain a substantial hit of protein. But by the end of the day, you're really looking at sort of like one and a half <laughs> meals that have enough protein to um, total by the end of the day in order to make sure that this particular population is getting enough protein, uh, let alone, you know, are they resistance training? So let's imagine they are resistance training. There are still challenges to getting enough protein in the older population because the, the total amount that you need to consume is usually about 50 to 100% more than what's typically ingested. And it's not the easiest thing to tell somebody who's in his, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, hey, bro, you need to double your, your protein intake and you need to start weight training. <laughs> so, so well, yeah, I have that, that conversation all the time. So yeah, <laughs> oh, good. that's why we're having this conversation. Yes. Now it, your, your publisher, cause you brought it up. Uh, I I'm familiar with your publisher cause I've, I've had lots of their authors on, uh, they tend to be in the keto space. They tend to be in the low carb space, uh, from my experience. And you did start talking about keto. So I was actually, when I got this book, I was like, oh, flexible dieting. And then this being a, a predominantly keto publisher, maybe they're, they're branching out and that's, uh, that's good. 
uh, but I was kind of expecting, a, I was almost expecting a keto book to be, to be honest with you. So I was mm-hmm. kind of surprised we didn't get into keto, but then you did. And then I was not surprised um, why we didn't get into keto, yeah. particularly as you start looking at what the goals are here, which is, you know, to gain muscle, to increase strength, improve endurance, uh, as you said in the subtitle, what was it? Optimal physique, performance, and health. And uh, you pretty much did in the book talk about how keto works within all of those realms. Could you kind of go through that with us? Yeah, sure. Oh, oh, and and before I, I I go into that, I just realized I needed to quickly answer the the hierarchy of importance with protein. So, with respect to protein intake, there is a, a hierarchy of importance that's worth touching upon, and of most importance with protein intake is total daily amount. That's tier number one. And then the next tier down is the distribution or the pattern of protein doses throughout the day. Um, That's of secondary importance to the total amount that you have by the end of the day. And of least importance there is the timing of protein relative to the training bout. And so interestingly, we could go into an hour on each one of those tiers. <laughs> yeah. And, and you do. And that's, that's the cool thing in the book is you, you literally do talk about the science behind, uh, because I get the question, should I be doing a protein shake after my workout? Should, you know, do I have that one yes. hour window? Do I have all those questions are actually answered in your book with mm-hmm. citations, lots of citations, lots of evidence, lots of science. Uh, so, so again, you've answered the question and you answer it over and over and over, depending on what the goals of the person training are. So uh, the hierarchy is important, but the core of it is get enough. Get enough. Throughout yes. the day. And then the right. rest of it will take care of itself, pretty much, particularly for those of us over 40 that, you know, if our training volume is not professional caliber, uh, th- those other two tiers actually mean a-, a little bit less than they would otherwise, in my opinion. But um, yes. the science says, get enough. That's the first tier. Get that done. Uh, and for a lot of us, that's a struggle uh, because it's um, it's in our food. But if we're trying, you know, many people are trying to do multiple things at once, uh, mm-hmm. trying to lose weight, trying to, you know, eat a certain way, trying to, you know, live our lives and having ready protein uh, when packaged snacks are a little bit easier um, <laughs> sometimes not, not so easy, but, uh, you do dive into this deep. That's why I, we're, we're scratching the surface here, uh, and get into the book because the science is there. The advice is there. The actual grams are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all in there. Yes, yes, yes. And so if, if anybody listening to this episode wanting to know, well, then how much protein do I, do I take? I can t- give you a gram number. <laughs> But do you know how to translate those grams into chunks of food? <laughs> well, yeah. some of you do. And, and for those who do, um, the gram amount that, that kind of en- encompasses what most people require to optimize their total daily protein intake is somewhere between 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of, in quotes, ideal body weight or target body weight. And I say that because if somebody is obese and they base their tar- their protein intake on their total body weight, they will be consuming a, an unnecessarily high amount of protein in a lot of instances. So protein targeting would be based on 
target body weight or goal body weight. So that's 0.7 grams to 1.0 grams per pound of target body weight. So for those of you listening who are dying to know what, what, what's the sweet spot (laughs) of total daily protein intake? Well, that's it. Yeah. Okay. So let's, okay. So on the keto, (laughs) yeah, let's jump into keto. So with keto, keto is an interesting thing because it works very well for weight loss. And the caveat to that statement is it works very well for a temporary period for most people who try it. And that's because there appears to be a general inability to sustain strict keto, which by most definitions is 50 grams or less a day of carbs. Most people cannot sustain that for the long term. And the people who try to, their carb intake ends up roughly tripling over the course of a year of attempting keto. So it ends up tripling from the original assignment of eating less than 50 grams a day. And so that is the main issue with keto is that it works really, really well for fat loss and weight loss. And the way that it works for those things is that it removes a lot of options, a lot of food options. And the options it removes usually are foods that are hyper palatable, carb and fat combination foods that are very easy to over overconsume. And so when you remove those options, you simply are defaulted to eating less total calories by the end of the day, end of the week, end of the month. And so there's a lot less variety in the diet. There's a lot less opportunity to overeat in the diet. There's a lot less motivation to sit there and overeat your fatty piece of meat. So uh, that's how keto works. Of course, the problem is uh, most, the the majority, and I, I can't put an exact number, on what that exactly means, but more than half (laughs) of the subjects who get on keto end up breaching the upper limits of keto by six months, certainly by 12 months. So um, for those of you who are on keto and have been on it for a few years and love it, and that's the way you do it, then I don't, I don't care, man. That's great. (laughs) You found what works for you. That's wonderful. But my issue with keto is when people go around saying that keto is the best keto is superior keto does special things. And it's actually a double-edged sword to, to keto. When you look at long-term health and, and when you look at uh, the optimization uh, or, or the protection of cardiovascular health, because with keto being a high fat diet, you're looking at 65 to 80%, 85% of the diet coming from fat, then you better be pretty dang careful about the uh, type of fat that you're eating because that's the predominant source of calories in your diet. And if all you're eating is land animal fats all day mixed with, you know, there are other crappy kind of vegetable-based fats as well, then you're setting yourself up for dyslipidemia and then the development of uh, cardiovascular disease and then potentially, uh, cardiovascular, uh, events. So it it can be a double-edged sword, but the the thing about keto and the good thing about keto is while you're on it, you're probably going to be losing weight. 
Yeah. And, and I kind of put this in that continuum of dietary control is keto fits in the kind of the rigid range. And it is something that you do have to manage because from a nutritional perspective, if you're not eating certain vegetables, as you mentioned, if you're eating certain foods in excess to try to make that happen, because, you know, keto didn't get the nickname of being the bacon diet for no reason. People were like, oh, sure. You can eat all the bacon you want. And that's, that's not really the right way to do keto and keto as a way of eating. I use it. I use it as a tool. It's a temporary tool. Like I said, for a period of time, I can get over into the rigid mind frame and mindset and it works fine for me. Uh, but when it comes to wanting to put on muscle, uh, to get stronger, um, keto is keto might not be the best approach for us and su surprise endurance athletes might not do well on keto either. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. And that definitely is what the research evidence shows. So the collective literature on keto and performance is that it's a, it's a bad bet <laughs> for that, but that's not too far-fetched when you consider that uh, athletic performance is really a carbohydrate based thing. It's, it's based on the availability either from from what you ingest around training or from what you store in your muscles. So glycogen being the stored form of carbohydrate, if you are under fueled from a carbohydrate perspective, that will always compromise the potential for maximally performing. Now there are ultra endurance athletes who try to lowball their carbs and that's fine, but but they are more the exception than the rule in terms of the elite in that area. And even the ultra endurance athletes who have done really well and claim to be low carbing, when you look at their actual programs, they're consuming carbs throughout the race. <laughs> so uh, they just happen to be consuming less than, than what's normally uh, recommended by the major organizations. So, so keto is something that if you have a lot at stake, in terms of trophies or medals or endorsements and stuff, then you're, you're not going to be a, a keto athlete who, um, who, who, who is compromising or jeopardizing his or her potential for maintaining the, the, that elite status. It's, it's just, it just doesn't happen. Now, if you're a weekend warrior or a, a regular, regular guy, just trying to look good at the pool or the beach, or at the high school reunion, then, you know, undercarbing is not an issue. It, it, you know, if you want to do good at the weekend soccer game, you might be compromised a little bit by being on keto and uh, you might not make the score the most amount of points out of the rest of your buddies, but it's not that big of an issue where it, it where keto becomes an issue with athletics is at, at the elite level and the professional level. You're not going to see many, um, pro athletes at all, even going near keto because it's a liability. Yeah. I think where, where you kind of hit the road, rubber, the rubber hit the road for me when we were talking about endurance was, um, I think a lot of us look at endurance and think of it as a, oh, I'm going to start with this pace and I'm going to run that pace for the entire part of the race. But for most people that have done any competing at all, they know there are periods of time when you're going to try to go a little bit harder, a little bit faster. 
for a lot of us that are just recreational athletes, that's, that's once you see the finish line and it's, you know, it's, it's right there, you're going to, you're going to try to sprint to the end. And the reality of it is you may not have the kind of gas you wanted to have doing some of those sprints or faster bits of work because you don't have the muscle glycogen necessary to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's correct. And it's those moments that separate the <laughs> the top finishers from, from those who don't place it's yeah. the so-called race winning moves being climbing up hills on, on, you know, either running or cycling, um, passing, um, that ending sprint towards the finish line is going to be a high intensity effort. And so those who are undercarbed simply do not have the, the biochemical reserves required to power those race winning moves. And, uh, yeah, it can make the difference between winning and losing. Now there was one other thing that you had in the book that I could not leave without talking about, um, because to me, this solved, this solved kind of an, a, a question I had, because, you know, you're trying to work with a client or someone's trying to work with uh, themselves and they're like, well, you know, I'm trying to chart my calories and my, and my macros and my food. And like you said, they've, they've got that app and they're like every day, every day they're in the app. Um, and then in the end, you're like, okay, well, how'd you do today? How'd you do today? How'd you do today? And one bad day then kind of becomes this, uh, can become this bad cycle for, for particularly for individuals who've struggled in the past. So if you've mm -hmm. gone through something and like you struggle and fail, you work and fail, you work, and now you're trying this again, but this, uh, quick, uh, single digit adherence rating system. Mm -hmm. I think this could be the key for a lot of people that have struggled with that start and fail cycle uh, that they go through mm -hmm. every time. Uh, if so, if, if you get nothing else from this flexible dieting book, I think this system is key. Could you, could you tell us about this system sure. and how it works? Yeah, this is something that I, I put together and implement started implementing back in of uh, 2005 2006 and it appeared it first appeared in the self published book I did in 2007 and and I used to call it the calendar method uh where you just write a number down from 1 to 10 that where you're basically rating your your performance or your adherence or compliance to the program with uh, uh 10 being perfect and so um when that calendar is up on your wall and you're seeing a bunch of eights and nines and tens, then inevitably you, you, you see progress at the end of the month. So you, you are marching towards your goals. Whereas if you see just a bunch of five, sixes and sevens littering up the, the month, then you, then you uh, have a sense of self accountability and a sense of awareness of why your progress is not happening. And so this real quick, self grading system on a scale of one to 10. How good did you do? The, the fact that it takes like one minute to think about and write down the number um, was kind of a big win because people, well, clients who hated taking detailed records, they, they loved this method as long as they could be honest with me and honest with themselves about their performance on, on a scale of one to 10. It just took them one minute to or less. <laughs> it took them 10 seconds to think about how they did and write down the number and send it over. And nobody's going to be sending over nines and tens. And then like, you know, at the end of the month, wondering what the hell happened, 
it just it just doesn't work like that. When when you can have um, when you can establish a certain level of trust with yourself or with your clients, and uh, uh, then they really can't once they're familiar with the program, they know whether they're following it or not. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times with people that um, they're very honest um, about like why they're failing at programs. They're like, you know, I know what to do. I just don't do it. <laughs> and you know what? That's, that's true. That's true. So let's, let's see if we can establish some accountability here that you can either have with yourself or with your coach or your practitioner, or your dietitian, your trainer. And let's just do a, a, a self-grading system. Uh, I call it the accountability rubric where it's one to 10. And over the years, like towards the 2010s-ish, I developed a way to make that rubric, that one to 10 scale, a little bit more concrete. So it's more of a, a, a checklist. Now it, it evolved into being a checklist where there's 10 specific um, points or, or tasks that you need to have completed throughout the day in order to grant yourself that number. And if you hit all 10 of those things, which could be drink enough water, get enough sleep, get enough protein, get eat two to four fruits a day, eat two to four servings of vegetables a day, it's down the line, 10 things, 10 healthy things, then give yourself the 10 if you got all 10 and, and so on and so forth. And so that made the accountability rubric a little bit more real and a little more concrete for people to kind of think about. But at the same time, it still took about 25 seconds to look down the list and see whether you hit all those checkpoints. And then you can take a look at the month. If it's littered with eights, nines, and tens, you're going to be reaching your goals. So yeah, so I'm, I'm glad yeah. that you found that system helpful. And there's a bunch of different things like that in the book that I hope that the readers will resonate with at least one of them. So, um, mm. but yeah, that this is something that I've used pretty extensively in, in my practice is the, well, it's the a really accountability cool, cool, even for doing it for yourself. It's just to say, if I want to start implementing a new habit, a new mm-hmm. action, I want to get better sleep, more sleep. It's a one to 10. It's a simple thing. You wake up in the morning. How is my sleep? And guess what? They still sell paper calendars. You can still buy yeah. them. You can still yeah. have one of them and you can still sit there and look and say, okay, if I'm not hitting you know, if I'm not doing better than a six or seven, what, what's going on? Uh, you can catch yourself pretty early in the month uh, mm-hmm. as you start seeing that slide. And it's like, okay, what's, what am I doing here? That's not helping me do this because I know this action gives me the result that I want. So like I said, I, I really, I really appreciate that tool. And I, and there's, like you said, a lot of that, just good stuff in there that we, like, I, I told you before the call, we, I could spend two, three days <laughs> talking to you about this. Thank stuff. you. Yeah. <laughs> now, Alan, I define wellness as being the healthiest, fittest, and happiest you can be. What are three strategies or tactics to get and stay well? You know, the first one, and this might be really cliche, Alan, but get enough sleep, get enough good quality sleep. And per the scientific literature, it is a low probability that you're going to be optimizing your health if, if you consistently dip 
far below seven hours. Like, and, and I know a lot of healthy people and uh, people who are just very vigorous getting five, six hours a day, but that's them. And that's how they're wired and that's how they're built. And per the scientific evidence, they're not in the majority. So statistically at the population level, you would want to get at least seven hours of sleep a night, or at least try to. And if you're not one of these people who can, and you feel amazing with that six hours a day, great, fine. But just know that statistically people's sleep is optimized at seven and up. And so that would be the first. Uh, the second thing would be for God's sakes, lift stuff. If you can, <laughs> you know, um, and it doesn't have to be Olympic lifting and powerlifting and bodybuilding and flexing in the mirror between sets like you and me, you know, people can do activities that do involve resisted joint movements that aren't necessarily at the gym. You know, they're not necessarily in the, the weight room, of, you know, where you're fighting for spots with the gym bros. A lot of people are intimidated by the, the, the word resistance training. They're just picturing barbells and dumbbells flying around. But any, any kind of movement that you can just involve your joints, you know, with, with resisted movement, and there's a million resources and ways to do it. You can go outside and do it. You can go to a park and, and do various things. It doesn't have to be at the gym. Get resistance training in your life. You know, get enough sleep. Make sure you 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 get resistance training as a foundation, uh, as a non-negotiable part of your training. About some people think that all you need to do is go for a bunch of walks throughout the week and you're good. Well, okay, well, as good as walking is, that's not going to save you from sarcopenia. That's not going to save you from the ravages of aging. That's not going to allow you to age amazingly like Alan Milsner. Um, so what people need to realize they have to do a certain amount of pushing and pulling and maybe some, some squatting or, or some at least leg extension and hip extension and things to stimulate the lower body on a resisted basis, uh, whether it's more primal and organic type of movement outside or, or whether it's in the gym. So that'll be number two. And the third one, eat the foods that you personally like most. You know, forget about whatever diet book is telling you are the, the superfoods that everybody needs to eat. That's just a load of baloney, really. Uh, if you if you take a survey of all the centenarians in the world that, um, and super centenarians, they all eat different foods. They all have diff a different list of favorite foods. And, uh, you know, <laughs> almost all of them list a bunch of crap they include in their diet every day too but um but yeah stick with the foods that you enjoy personally because um there's there's psychological and physiological signature reasons why why you gravitate towards those foods and um we as humans are not completely <laughs> devoid of any any instinct you know we have a feel for what we like and and there's good reasons for that so you will be able to stick to your diet long term if you stick to the foods that you like within a healthy eating pattern, right? I'm talking about foods within the, the food groups and you should be getting um, um, the food groups. So those would be my three. 
if, if, if I could boil it down to three, and I guess maybe if I may add a little sub thing under the eat the foods that you like, eat them in the pattern that fits your personal preference and schedule. There's a lot of hullabaloo going around about when you should eat your foods. How, how much should we time restrict the, the eating window? Can we only eat from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. in order to maximize? You know, that's, that's all majoring in the minors. That's not going to make somebody freaking awesome at 70, <laughs> you know, compared to maintaining their exercise program and a decent overall food selection of the foods that they love. The, the, when you eat your foods in the day, that should be determined by how you prefer it. Do you like to eat dinner at 8 p.m. instead of 6 p.m.? Cool, eat it now. Do you like to have a pre-bed snack? Great, have that. Do you like to skip breakfast? Is that how you function best? Cool, skip the hell out of breakfast. It's not gonna make or break you. There are very, very silly books going around saying that breakfast is the most important meal of the day and you have to stop eating X foods or stop eating carbs that you have to make sure you don't eat like three hours before bed. That's a load of crap, Alan. And um, I can't emphasize that enough, how, how trivial uh, th that advice is in the big picture. So Thank you. Thank my you advice that. is <laughs> do what you can stick to within the context of an overall um, healthy selection of foods. Great. Thank you for that. If someone wanted to learn more about you, learn more about your book, Flexible Dieting, where would you like for me to send them? AlanAragon.com. And then we've got the various links to, you know, my stuff. So I have a research review as well, a monthly research review for the nerdy types who like to <laughs> really dig into the details. And then um, I've got my book, uh, flexible dieting that's going to come out on June 7th, but it's available for pre-order as you and I are speaking, but you know, this, this episode is going to drop on the, on, on, -day, on so. June 7th. So yeah, the book is yeah. available, uh, now wherever you want to get books, you can also go to, um, his website, alanaragon.com. If you go to 40 plus fitness podcast.com forward slash five, four, one, I'll be sure to have links there. So Alan, thank you so much for being a part of 40 plus fitness. You got it, Alan, and you as well. Thank you so much. Hey, Rachel, how was that interview? Oh my gosh, it was great. It was really interesting because, well, right at the very beginning, you drew me in with the title of the book being Flexible Dieting, but the $64,000 question, how do you stick to a diet? And yeah. isn't that the question of the year? Yeah. Well, you know, he went through a publisher and sometimes publishers want to change the name of a book. You might think this ah. is the name of the book. So there was discussion about flexible dieting in the book, you know, in mm -hmm. all fairness, it, it was a part of it, uh, mm -hmm. a part of the conversation, which is an important part of, like you said, sticking to a diet. But really what this book is about is about nutrition for performance or mm -hmm. physique. Okay. And, and so, and health. So it was science-based, meaning he went to the science, the studies that were out there. He didn't pick a side of a conversation and say, this is what it is based on mm -hmm. his beliefs. He literally went through and said, okay, what is out there? Everything that's out mm -hmm. there. And then based on what's there, can we draw a conclusion? Mm -hmm. And in some cases he didn't really feel like we could, but for a lot of it, 
he literally would go through and say, okay, based on all these studies, this is, this is what it says. And this is the bet. If you want to perform well at strength training, this mm-hmm. is what you eat. Mm-hmm. Literally giving you the calories, giving you the, um, the macro breakdowns, all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the flexible dieting comes around in the, okay, that's all good and fine. If I know what I'm supposed to eat, but can mm-hmm. I stick to it mm-hmm. long enough to, to see that performance improvement? Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the flexible dieting comes in of saying, okay, if you're getting the nutrition you need and you've got a little bit of buffer calories in there that you have, you made, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 90, 10, uh, you say, so 10% of my calories. So I'm going to eat 2000 calories as I'm trying to cut weight. 10% of that or 200 calories mm-hmm. can be for lack of a better word, crap. Um, so <laughs> it, it could be chips. It can be, you know, a candy bar or maybe half mm-hmm. a candy bar, depending on how many calories are in it. But you see where you can go is say, okay, I, you know, don't have to eat perfect all the time right. to see these things. If, I'm, if I go in and I at least know that I'm getting the nutrition that I need, mm-hmm. that's the first one. And then second, I'm not just overeating because of these, lack of a better word, empty calories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm going and then the, the way I would say it is enjoy the heck out of it. So, sure. you know, don't make it just any old candy bar, make it your favorite candy bar or make it mm-hmm. something higher class, higher end stuff. Mm-hmm. Don't just drink just any beer, make it a beer that you're really going to enjoy. Mm-hmm. That kind of mindset makes it a lot more sustainable. Well, the other thing that really um, attracted me was that he said that your calorie deficit deficit doesn't have to be a daily thing. As long as you have a calorie deficit over the week or the months or the year that it takes for you to get to your goal weight, if, if that was the main goal, but yeah, it's, you don't have to be really rigid with your eating rules day by day. So I, I, I like that approach. Yeah. Even though, you know, there's a lot of things about the human body that are built into the rhythms of a day or a a month or a year. Mm -hmm. Um, the reality of it is, yeah, um, there's nothing magic from, from the calories in a day. Mm -hmm. Um, you can gain weight in a day. You can lose weight in a day, uh, but you're not going to lose a whole lot and you're not going to gain a whole lot. If you do notice the scale move any at all, really much on a day-to-day basis, that's mostly just water shifting around. Mm-hmm. You you went pee one more time than you did the day before. You weigh less. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. that simple. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, I think the key of what what he's talking about there is just know that there's sort of a target of what you're burning, doing the mm-hmm. work that you're doing, uh, and you don't have to create an accounting system like it's General Electric. You can go right. through and say, I know these foods. Um, I know this is how my body reacts to it. I know what a serving size looks like. I know about how much, and for many of us, we do eat the same foods, mm-hmm. the staples on, on a fairly regular basis. So if sure. you know, okay, this is my dinner. I have it probably once a week. You don't have to look it up every time. You don't have to say, okay, what are my macros? What are my calories on this? You just know, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting a third of my protein in this meal. I'm mm-hmm. getting half of my carbs in this meal. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm getting 35% of my calories in this meal. And if you just know those kind of things, mm-hmm. it, it's just plug and play and, and, and you know, sure. enjoy your food. And then occasionally, yeah, flexible. If something happens and you need to be flexible, then just let it go. 
Mm-hmm. You're not destroying yourself in a day. Yeah, right. The other thing I really enjoyed was the part about protein and how usually people 40 and over, or maybe even 50 and over, or even 60 and over, have a strange relationship with protein in their diet. It seems like they skip it for the morning and maybe have a tiny bit at lunch and then throw it all at dinner hour when it seems more appropriate to spread it throughout the day. It's easier to get if you spread it. That's that's absolute truth. Um, and unfortunate, um, the food guidelines, uh, food that's available, uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're highly dense in carbs and, mm-hmm. you know, not the nutritionally uh, right. dense carbs, the, but bread. So there's yeah. pizza, there's hamburgers, there's mm-hmm. all those foods. And you say, okay, what's the protein? And they have some protein, mm-hmm. but you look at the protein in the cheese and the pepperoni, mm-hmm. assuming you even got that on there. Um, mm-hmm. How much protein is in a pizza? And I'd say probably not a lot. I haven't looked it mm-hmm. up, but I would say, I'd, I'd say, less than 20% of the total calories is coming from protein. Yeah. Breakfast cereal. Maybe there's some in your milk. If you're even drinking regular milk, Mm because you know, that, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so maybe you're doing the soy milk or maybe you're doing the oat milk and you start looking at the protein of that and the protein that was Mm -hmm. in the cereal. And you're kind of like, okay, 75% of my calories are coming from carbs. 20% 20 percent mm-hmm. from fat and now five percent protein so it's almost devoid of protein right and most of us should be eating more protein mm-hmm. than we are and it's it's mm. hard to shift over until you actually make a concerted effort to get protein into every meal well yeah exactly and it's you know i don't think we take we don't pay that close attention to how we eat our habits of our eating. And if you're in a habit of having cereal for breakfast or, you know, a sandwich or something at lunch, you just don't notice that you're not getting the adequate amount of protein. Probably Mm -hmm. the other thing he mentioned too, was the, um, the, uh, ratio for how much grams of protein per body weight. He mentioned that it's not the body weight that you're at, it's at your goal body weight for the purpose of weight loss, which yeah. that is something yeah. I don't know that I paid attention to. I don't know that I've heard it like that before. Well, yeah, because what they would what they would typically base it on is they would say your lean, your lean mass. Mm-hmm. So what you're thinking in terms of this, so, so let's say you're at 30% body fat and you want to get down closer to say 20 mm-hmm. or 15. Okay, then you're gonna want to lose the body fat. Mm-hmm. And if you were to do that, you lose that amount of body fat to get down to, uh, you're going to be closer to your lean body mass weight. So realizing now you're carrying less fat. So mm-hmm. the weight you are is closer to lean body mass weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly if you're like a bodybuilder and you're trying to get down into the single digits, mm-hmm. you're carrying very little fat. And most mm-hmm. of the mass that you have is your lean body. Mm-hmm. So that's where that number comes from is really just a function of saying, rather than think about it from lean body mass, because for a lot of us, that's hard unless you go get a DEXA scan and they tell you your, your, your body mass is, you know, this amount of fat, you don't know. So it's easier to just base it on where your goal weight would be mm-hmm. and just use that. Now that's, that's going to overstate it a little bit. From, mm-hmm. you know, the numbers, but it's, it's not significant. Again, if you're just thinking, unless you're trying to go from 50% body fat to 40%, then 
if 40% is your target, you're going to mm-hmm. probably be overeating some protein because that's not really a lean body mass. That's gotcha. not even really, but you see for most of us, it's like, we want to get down to that 20 to 15 range. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where that number's coming in. Yeah. That was great. It was a great discussion. Really interesting. Yeah. This is, this goes down as, as so far my favorite book in oh. 2022. Wow. Um, you know, if anyone is really looking at improving their performance uh, mm-hmm. I would strongly encourage them to read this book um, awesome. because it's going to give you the formula for how you can eat to optimize mm-hmm. your performance and whatever you're trying to do, get stronger, run further, faster, mm-hmm. and just look better. Awesome. Great. Great discussion. All right. Well, I'll talk to you next week. Great. Take care. You too. Next time on the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we meet Emily Gold Mears and discuss her book, Optimizing Your Health an approachable guide to reducing your risk of chronic disease. Until then, have a happy and healthy week.